Well, you know, sometimes when people are speaking, they don't realize to whom they are talking. You ever caught this? There's examples I came across. Like there was one guy who was online commenting as a keyboard warrior, and he was commenting on a company called SoftSpace. He wrote it as one word, SoftSpace, instead of two words, SoftSpace. Talked about SoftSpace. So there was a, a kind gentleman who responded and said, hey, uh, it's, it's actually not one word, it's two words, soft space. To which the cocky commenter continued and said, no, I'm pretty sure it is one word, soft space, it's a company. To which the kind gentleman said, I know, I'm the CEO. <laughs> it's two words, it's soft space, right? So sometimes you don't know to whom you are talking. Give you a, another example. In 2016, the Dallas Cowboys were having a very good season, and one guy tweeted out, hashtag Cowboys, to which somebody re like responded and tweeted at him, hashtag bandwagon. Sometimes you don't know to whom you are talking. That was Benson Mayowa, who at the time played for the Dallas Cowboys, right? And so he responded, he said, son, I play on the team, now go stand in the corner. <laughs> I like that response. Go stand in the corner. I'll give you a third example. There was a time when some Sadducees tried to debate Jesus on the resurrection. Son, go stand in the corner. Right? Like That's just not, not good. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. They did not know to whom they were talking. Now, to set it up a little bit, bring you up to speed, we're in chapter 20 now. There's only four chapters left. And so far, Jesus has done like 14 parables. And about this time, the religious leaders are starting to wake up a little bit. They're like, hey, hey, I think he's talking about us. Yeah, yeah, he is. So they're, they're starting to get it. If you remember from last week, Pastor Austin did that amazing sermon. It was such a pleasure for me to just sit in the congregation under his teaching and listen and learn. Uh, what a pleasure. Uh, gave a great, great sermon, and at the beginning of his passage went like this in Luke chapter 20, verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. Yep, he did. And if you remember, it went on, they, they tried to trick him and trap Jesus with this question about paying taxes, and Jesus just totally decimated their argument, if you remember that. And so I feel like after that, Jesus was like, okay, who's got next? That was 14. Who's got number 15? Step up. It's your turn at the plate. And so the ones that step up are the Sadducees. And that's where we are now in Luke chapter 20, verse 27. It says this, There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. Who are the Sadducees? If you remember, Pastor Austin talked about the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Zealots. But we did not get to the Sadducees. So I'll let you know just a little bit about them. They were actually a comparatively small group. They were a part of wealthy, priestly families in Jerusalem. Specifically, they drew their wealth and their power because they were the ones that kind of ran the temple. Okay, so running of the temple fell under them. Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote about them, said that, Joseph, that the Sadducees were very unpopular people because they were contentious. They fought, with the, they fought with themselves. They fought with everybody. One of the things they fought about is the Sadducees denied 
the occurrence of supernatural things. Mind you, they ran the temple. Okay, think about that for a sec, right? But they, they denied all supernatural occurrences, including the resurrection from the dead. Now, by that, what that means is that, that there's life after death, that after you die on this earth, that you rise and there's something after. They denied the afterlife. Okay, so they would argue about this, particularly with the Pharisees. So you got the Pharisees and the Sadducees arguing about this. To help keep them straight in your mind, when you think of the Pharisees, think of like independent Baptists. Okay, they're, they're like uptight, religious, legalists. They're self-righteous, they're nitpicky, condemning, never smile Pharisees. When it comes to the Sadducees, think of like, liberal mainline denomination Christians. Or maybe just think of your neighbors. All right, think of your neighbors. Like they, so they are materialistic. It's all about money and power. They're kind of factor. They're living for this world, not for the things of God. They don't really fully acknowledge God's sovereignty over their lives. But, but they, they're into religion. I mean, your neighbors dabble in religion. But at the same time, uh, the, they don't really believe all that supernatural stuff. Okay, that's the Sadducees. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees are going to debate about this. And both of them want Jesus kind of on their team, on their side. So the Sadducees are going to come up now and going to offer a hypothetical to kind of trap Jesus to their side. And here's how that goes. And we'll start out in chapter 20, verse 28. And they asked him a question saying, teacher... Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman died also. Okay, I'm thinking in that, that woman would have died long ago, right? But... Seven guys. Anyway, so uh, she died, and in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. You know, you can see them just kind of pat themselves on the back. They're all self-proud, like, we got them. We got them. Okay, let me explain some things. What the Sadducees are referring to is a practice called the Leverite marriage. It comes out of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, where uh, the issue is for Jews, lineage and heritage and carrying on the family name, very, very important. So they didn't want it to die out at any one spot. So if a man married a woman, didn't have children to carry on his name, after he died, it fell to his unmarried brother to marry his widow, Okay. And so he would do that. Now, that's a protection to the widow because widows were very at risk. They were very vulnerable. So that was a protection to her. But also, as they had children, some of those children would be considered the dead brothers to carry on his line. See what they're doing there? And you think your family's dysfunctional? Wow, okay, so there it is. Now, by New Testament times, this practice had mostly died out. But still, the Sadducees think, we can latch onto that, and we can build this hypothetical because we'll get them. Watch this, watch this. And they use that as fodder. And the idea is that this woman has had seven husbands, so if there's a resurrection of the dead, that's the point, if there's a resurrection of the dead, then in heaven, whose husband will she be? Well, of course, she can't have seven husbands, so gotcha, Jesus, no resurrection from the dead. That's kind of how they're playing this. 
So Jesus is going to answer them. And here's what he says in response. Pick it up in verse 34. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. And then Jesus added, son, go stand in the corner. No, he didn't say that. Uh, All right, we learn some things about heaven here. First, let me give you a footnote. When I say about heaven, I'm referring to our eternal state. Actually, the Bible teaches us that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and we are made to live on the paradise of the unstained by sin, new earth, okay? So we use a shorthand form, though. We say in heaven, but we actually mean on the new earth, okay? Just be aware of that. Now, I, uh, time to time, I do these videos called Ask Pastor Rick, where I take a question that's bubbling in our congregation, and I try to answer that as best I can and shoot it out so that everybody can kind of hear my thoughts on that. I actually did this question at one point, are we married in heaven? I stockpile these videos on YouTube. You got to know, this was the most contentious issue I've ever done. Did you know that people sometimes get mean in their comments? I can't remember if it was this video or another, but one time somebody responded, your face is awkward. (laughs) (laughs) And? (laughs) Yeah, so like, did you have a point? Is that, no, that's it. Okay, my face is awkward. Got it, got it. Now on this video I did about the fact that we're not married in heaven, one guy responded, he said, no, 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 uh, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say that we're not married in, in heaven. He said that you can't get married in heaven, all right? So, so there's no weddings in heaven. But if you're married on earth, that carries over into heaven. It's actually not what Jesus is saying. Think of it in context. I'm like, dude, think about this. So what Jesus is saying is he's saying, don't worry, my dear Sadducees, This woman who has been married seven times already, it's no problem. She can't get married an eighth time. How did that help anything? Like, that didn't solve. I'm like, I think Jesus is a tad sharper than that. His point is clearly that we are like angels in heaven, not that we become angels. They're a separate creation, but we're like angels in two things one, that we are immortal, and also that we are not married. Angels are not married. So that's Jesus' point. We are not married in heaven. Now, as I say that, I realize I'm speaking to a bunch of married people who probably have different reactions. (laughs) Some of you are very sad when you hear that. You think, man, that'll be hard not to be married to my spouse. And and some of you are like, thank God. (laughs) Because at some point, the crazy train has to stop. Right? Like, like, I'm committed to the covenant, but this can't go on for all eternity, right? So, thank God. I, okay, I understand. I understand. Uh, we are no longer married in our eternal state. And that's for a couple reasons. Like, marriage is intended for our time here on earth for a couple different reasons. Number one, marriage is given for our survival. That we need each other to survive. That's one reason it was given. And when we're in our eternal state, our survival is no no longer under threat. Uh, Secondly, marriage is given for our sanctification. 
Not for our satisfaction, but for our sanctification. And, and God uses that to grow. You have no idea how much God has used Shannon to point out how much Rick has to grow, right? So, so sanctification is in, is in light of marriage. And when we get to heaven, my sanctification is finished, okay? Now, also, marriage is for procreation. That God, as we are in this fallen, broken world, death is a reality. And if there were not procreation, humanity would have ended a long time ago. So God gave us marriage for procreation. But when we get to heaven, there's no longer any birth, there's no longer any death. And so we don't need procreation, we don't need marriage. And then, of course, the other issue that Jesus is getting at is the hypothetical trap that the Sadducees brought up. What about people who've been married multiple times? Some of you have relatives like that, right? <laughs> anyway, uh, and, but we also have people in this room who've not been married seven times, as in this example, but we have um, people in this room who've been married multiple times, like maybe a widow whose husband died, and then afterwards she got remarried. Who's her husband in heaven? Uh-oh. We have widowers, we, you know, divorcees, whatever. You, you've got this, right? So if, if we are married in heaven, the Sadducees have a good point. We've got a problem. And the problem isn't that there's no resurrection. The problem is answered in that there is no marriage in heaven. No, it's not that we don't remember and recognize each other. When we're in heaven, I'm going to recognize my wife. I'm going to know who she is. I'm going to remember fondly our partnership on earth that God called us into in that covenant of marriage. See, when we're in heaven, we're not just, we're not disembodied souls. We're not like floating on clouds, playing harps. That's not biblical theology. We're actually, we're made as human beings to live on the earth. We'll be on the new earth in paradise with no fall, no stain of sin. But on that, we're made to be in relationship and communication and we dialogue. And so I am quite sure that when I see Shannon, we will remember our time on earth and she will be special to me. I'll have a fond affection for that sister in Christ for all eternity. You can think of it this way. Who will be your pastor in heaven? Like some, many, most of you have probably had several pastors throughout your life. Who's your pastor in heaven? Uh-oh. We going to fight? We going to arm wrestle for it? Like what? No, your pastor in heaven, his name's Jesus. Like, like I, you realize I have no job come eternity. I'm going to have to figure out what I'm going to do, right? Because what's happening is our current reality is being swallowed up by a much greater reality. And so I, I'm saying I probably won't be your pastor in heaven. And some of you are saying, thank God. <laughs> At some point, the crazy train has to stop. Thank you for that. I said that in second service. Somebody said, amen. <laughs> like, I'm preaching the frozen chosen. I never get amens or any crowd. On that, I get a resounding amen. God bless you people. God bless you. All right. So we are not married in heaven. Well, that's not true. It's partially true. We're not married to each other in heaven. We are married to the Lord Jesus himself. See, our eternal state starts with a huge party, a feast. It's called the wedding feast of the Lamb, where the Lamb of God marries his bride, the church. Again, something greater swallows up our current reality, that we are married to Jesus, so that is that we trade up. Listen, <laughs> when you think of Jesus and your current spouse, you realize there's a big gap right there, right? So you are trading up. 
trading up. Now, granted, that is really hard for us to wrap our hearts around because we don't know what that's like, but I know what Shannon's like, and it's hard for me to understand. How is that better? C.S. Lewis had a great quote that I think is helpful on this. Listen to this. He said, I think our present outlook might be like that of a small boy who, on being told that the sexual act was the highest bodily pleasure, should immediately ask whether you ate chocolates at the same time. On receiving the answer no, he might regard the absence of chocolates as the chief characteristic of sexuality. In vain would you tell him that the reason why lovers in their raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think of. The boy knows chocolate. He does not know the positive thing that excludes it. We are in the same position. We know the sexual life we do not know except in glimpses the other thing which in heaven will leave no room for it. That's good, isn't it? Like, that's, that's us. We just don't know. We can imagine we get glimpses, but we don't know. But you got to understand, when you trade your earthly spouse for a more full experience of the Lord Jesus himself, no one in that moment is saying, dang it. Shucks. Nobody's feeling ripped off in that moment. All right, so a couple applications just so far in this message. Number one, I want you to know Jesus is the joy of heaven. Jesus is the focus of heaven. Like he's in the spotlight, everything else is in the shadows. That's not fully accurate. Actually, Jesus is the light. He's the radiance of heaven. He's the glory of heaven. He is what our fulfillment, our satisfaction, our joy in heaven is Jesus. When I help some families with the grieving process, do funerals, sometimes there is some crummy thinking that the the focus and joy of heaven is that we reunite with each other. And that's captured in this picture right here. And this is what a lot of people think heaven will be like, that we get there and we run to people. Now, I fully believe that we will reunite in heaven with those who are believers in Christ who have departed before us and we will, there will be a reunion. Yep, I believe that. But you have to know this is not the first moment in heaven. Let me show you the first moment in heaven. It looks like this. You see, Jesus is the joy of heaven. Jesus is the folk of, of heaven. He is our satisfaction. The glory of heaven is uniting with Jesus, not with other people. Though we'll do that too, all right? So Jesus is the joy of heaven. Now, a a second application. Single folks, let me speak to you for a moment. If you've heard what I've said so far, why in the world would you ever feel like a second-class citizen? Why? Granted, Jesus at some point might call you to marriage. And until that point, or if he never does, I want you to hear clearly, you are not a broken toy. You are not less than. You are actually an overachiever. You're not behind, you're ahead. You got there before us. You see that? Single folks, take courage. Take courage. And then thirdly, uh, and perhaps obviously, Uh, Jesus clearly dismantled their trap. He blew it up. He said, son, go stand in the corner. 
But as we continue with our passage, we also have to realize that Jesus, so far all, all he's done is play defense. He just like, they made, a, they, they made a shot and he just blocked it, okay? But then he's going to take the ball, dribble down, and he's going to slam dunk it. He's going to say something affirmative, something positive to prove the resurrection. And that's where we continue our passage in verse 37. Jesus continues speaking here. He says, but that the dead are raised... Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. In Matthew's recording of this, the scribes said, boom, roasted. <laughs> Matthew's account, they said, mic drop. No, neither is that true. You, they didn't have microphones back then, right? So I made that up. But you get the point. It's like, hey, do not debate with Jesus. You're going to catch a theme. Don't debate with Jesus. Because the Sadducees, they didn't know several things. Let me point out a few things that the Sadducees lacked. One, they did not understand the resurrection from the dead. Here, Jesus is making a positive, an affirmative case for the resurrection from the dead. What he does is he goes to Exodus chapter 3 and talks about the burning bush. Now, you may or may not know this part of biblical history, but when God called Moses to be kind of his man and represent him, God showed up and spoke to Moses as a voice out of this burning bush. And when he did, God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now that something very significant was set there that you might miss. So let me translate it into marriage and see if you catch this. What if a woman says, I am the wife of Abraham, the wife of Isaac, and the wife of Jacob? She's a polygamist. (laughs) Like, she's married to three guys at the same time. What is going on here, right? What I would expect her to say is, I was the wife of Abraham, the wife of Isaac, and the wife of Jacob. I go, okay, I get that. You married each in turn, and now they're dead. I, I understand that. But she wouldn't say, I am. But God says something different. God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He said, I am am the God of those three, of Isaac and Abraham and Jacob. The point is that they are still alive. That he is not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living, right? So they are still alive. Now realize though, in the series of three, Abraham uh, was the first and then Isaac and then Jacob was the most contemporary to the burning bush thing. But he had died from earth 200 years or more prior to the burning bush. He'd been dead a long time. But God is saying he ain't dead. There's a resurrection that they are alive to him. And the Sadducees do not know about the resurrection, but it's true. In fact, it's the whole plan. Jesus came to die and to rise. It's his entire exit strategy. It's exactly what he came to accomplish for us, that we would experience resurrection. It's all about that. In fact... Jesus has already several times predicted his resurrection. 
Therefore, if there is no resurrection from the dead, you understand Jesus is a fake. He's a liar, he's a phony, and he can be safely ignored. Unless he's telling the truth. If he's the king of resurrection. And it's got to be that way because if he's a phony, we have no hope. We've got nothing. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that where Paul speaks about the fact that if there is no resurrection, then we as Christians, we're idiots. It's my translation, but we're idiots because we banked our whole life on this stuff that is garbage. And what we ought to do is just go eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's go party because this is it, folks. Unless there is a resurrection. And therefore, we're not to be pitied. Actually, what he says in there that if there is no resurrection, we are of all men most to be pitied. We shouldn't be pitied. The resurrection is true. You see, this is a fallen, broken, messy, crappy world. And what the Sadducees want to say to you is, and then you die. Game over. And what Jesus is saying, I'm a game changer. This changes everything. This changes everything. He's the king of resurrection. Now, the second thing that the Sadducees don't know. They don't know about the resurrection, and then secondly, they don't know the scripture. In fact, in Matthew's account, you realize that different gospel writers, everything they write is true, but they don't write everything, right? So Matthew caught a phrase that Luke decided not to include. Matthew said this, that that Jesus said to them, you are wrong because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. Why would Jesus tell them they don't know the scriptures? They're Sadducees. They run the temple. What's that about? Well, from what we understand, it seems like the Sadducees might have only accepted the first five books of the Bible as scripture, canonical, that it was part of God's revelation. The first five books are the Pentateuch, the the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They only accepted those as the actual scriptures of God. Notice when they spoke, they said, did not Moses say, and they cite Deuteronomy. See, they're staying in their wheelhouse right there. This might explain why the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Because in those five books, the resurrection of the dead is only mentioned implicitly, not explicitly. Maybe why. It also explains why Jesus chose the passage of the burning bush. You understand, like if you're going to prove the resurrection of the dead from the Old Testament, go with something like Daniel 12 verse 2. There's much better passages. Why go to the burning bush? After all, Jesus accepted all those 39 books of the Old Testament as the word of God. He would commonly quote from Psalms and major prophets, minor prophets. Why go to, to that passage about the burning bush? out of Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. Well, he's meeting them on their own turf. They only believe those five are authoritative, so Jesus makes a point out of their own scriptures to prove the resurrection of the dead. There's a few things that we can do with that, some applications. Number one, don't debate with Jesus. If you have not written that down yet, please, don't debate with Jesus. Number two, realize this. Jesus has a very, very high view of the scriptures. One of the ideas that gets bad around sometimes is that the scriptures, it's not every word that God, like the words aren't important. 
The words are sometimes wrong or messed up. What's really important is the ideas behind the words. And so the scriptures become kind of like a trampoline. They're flexible. They're malleable. You can shape them to fit your circumstance. But don't get hung up on the words. Do you guys understand what Jesus just did? Jesus just based his entire argument for the resurrection from the dead on one word. No, 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 no. The tense of one word in the Old Testament. Jesus evidently had a very high view of every word revealed by God in the Scriptures. Very, very high view. And remember, he embraced all the scriptures, not just the first five books. So one of the things I want you to do in applying some of this is go read it. Like read the entire New Testament. Read the Old Testament. Then reread the New Testament. Read all of it. But hear this. When you read it, don't edit it. Let it edit you. Do not correct the scriptures. Let the scriptures correct you. That's our tendency, isn't it? We want to play God, and there's parts of the Bible we don't like, so we'll, we'll get out a pen and scratch some things out. No, no, no. Let the Word of God correct you. Right? The Sadducees, they didn't know the Scriptures. Jesus did. Let's be like Him. All right. Third and last thing that the Sadducees didn't know. <laughs> they did not know to whom they were talking. They just didn't know. They were talking to the Son of Man, spoken about in Daniel chapter 7. They're speaking to the Son of God, God in the flesh. They're speaking to the Messiah. They're speaking to the cornerstone, the cornerstone of all history, the cornerstone of all creation, the cornerstone of our salvation. That's who they're talking to with Jesus. They didn't realize it. Why go to Jesus? Why even care what he thinks? If he is the Son of God, then by all means ask him a question and shut up and learn. Go humble and go teachable. What do you have for me today, Messiah? But if he's not the Messiah, then why even care what Jesus thinks at all? It's, there's no value to his words. Who cares? Wait, let me tell you this. Here's why they cared. They cared because you had two parties. You had the Sadducees and you had the Pharisees. And Jesus has this big following. And both parties wanted to co-opt Jesus' followers to their team. So what they want to do is they want to get Jesus on their team so that it seems like all his followers should go to them. Uh, does that sound familiar to anyone? We have two parties today in America. We have the Republicans and we have the Democrats. And I have a leaning, I won't tell you what it is, but I'll tell you this much. Both parties want you to believe that they're the Savior. Both parties want you to believe that Jesus is on their team. Both parties want you to believe that no good Christian could possibly vote for that guy or for that guy. Both parties say that. Both parties want to co-opt Jesus. And they're saying, don't worry, trust us, we'll be your savior. And if you really love Jesus, you'll be on our team. Both parties say that. I remember hearing, uh, 25 years ago, I had the privilege of hearing Dr. Tony Evans preach live. And I remember him saying that Jesus does not ride on the backs of donkeys or elephants. 
that he, does, he did not come to take sides, he came to take over. And that is so true. It was true of politics 2,000 years ago, it's true of politics today. If Jesus showed up today, I think he would have some very strong words for Republicans. And if he showed up today, I think he would have some very strong words for Democrats. Jesus did not come to take sides. He came to take over. And he's the only Savior, and no party will do. Don't let anyone co-opt Jesus. And the Sadducees did not know to whom they were speaking. So they thought they were speaking to a pawn in the game whom they could co-opt for their side. They were not talking to a pawn. They're talking to the king. He is the resurrecting king. He is the resurrected king. He is the king. Resurrection is his game. It is his art. It is what he came to do. It is what he will do. It is what he is doing right now. And Jesus wants to do resurrection in your life. That if you trust in him, not yourselves, because you can't pull this off, okay? Resurrection from the dead, you'll never do it. But if you trust in what he did through his cross and resurrection, he will apply that to your life so that when you die, you experience resurrection from the dead. That's later. It's coming. It's going to be awesome. But don't miss this. He's the resurrecting king now. He wants to apply his resurrection to your life to raise you up out of the dust now. To bring death out of life now. To bring beauty out of ashes now. To bring healing out of brokenness now. If you will let him, he will resurrect your life. You say, well, Pastor Rick, you don't understand how messy my life is. You don't understand what I've done. You don't understand what I'm doing. You don't understand how broken I am. And I want to say to you, when it comes to Jesus, you don't understand to whom you're talking. He is the resurrected king. He's the resurrecting king. How dare we think that somehow my power to do sin is greater than his power to raise me up? He's way more powerful than any one of us. He's got this. And Jesus said he is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. He wants to raise you up. See, we often, we get hung up on secondary issues. The issue ought to be who Jesus is. And instead, we're making a, no, you don't understand how messy I am. That's not the issue. The Sadducees, instead of bowing before Jesus, they want to get hung up on a secondary issue about which are the scriptures and, and, and the resurrection of the dead. And folks, we still do this today. We, we want to bring up secondary objections and issues and therefore keep Jesus at bay. So some will not like what the Bible says about homosexuality. And because of that secondary issue, therefore, I'm going to keep Jesus at arm's length, at distance. I'm going to put him in check. Some won't like what the Bible says uh, about men and women and the differences. Some people don't like that the Bible acknowledges that there are men and women, right? And, and because of that secondary issue, I'm going to put Jesus in check. And this far he can come, but no farther in my life. And when, when we do that, what we're doing is we're saying, listen, Jesus, what is, where are you leading us? Oh, okay, uh, I like that. I'll walk with you for a little bit. Oh, you're leading there? No, I'm out. And when we play that game, realize this, Jesus is not your leader. 
somebody's not your leader until they go in a direction you don't like and you keep following. Then they're your leader. Up until then, you're just going for a walk. You just happen to be walking in the same direction for a little bit. You see that? See, we can't get hung up on secondary issues. The question is this, do you know to whom you are talking? This is Jesus. Is Jesus your Lord? Is he your leader? Is he your God? Did he rise from the dead? Is he the resurrected king? Is he the resurrecting king? If so, then by all means, follow him, period. Whatever he says is true. Don't debate with Jesus. Just follow him. But if he's not the resurrected king, completely ignore him. 365 days a year. I want you to ignore Jesus if he's not the resurrected king. But if he is the resurrected king, 365 days a year, I want you to worship and follow him. He's the king. So here's what I want you to think through this week. I want you to think through what is some secondary issue in your life? Something that you've been debating Jesus. I don't like that your scriptures say this and you're debating him on that issue. Or what is something that he's been calling you to do that you've been holding back? Or what is some current sin in your life that you're wrestling with and holding on to? Because we think we can lead our, our lives to life. And actually we lead our lives to death. And he is the one that holds the keys of life. He's the resurrecting king. What is that issue? And will you this week, will you acknowledge that Jesus ain't some pawn in the game? He is the king. And therefore, will you kneel? Will you bow? Will you worship And then will you have some conversations with your king so that he can start to massage his resurrection into your life, not only later, but now. That he can start to bring beauty and life out of the death that we've made of this place. And for that, I want to pray. Father in heaven, first we want to say thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus, our resurrected king, But then quickly on the heels of that, we have to say we're sorry. For we have presumed too often to debate with Jesus. (laughs) To, uh, To somehow assume that he's some pawn and that somehow we can keep him at bay with some little issues and that we're gonna edit your word instead of letting your word edit us. Oh Lord, we repent. I'm so sorry for the many, many times that I have done that. And so, Father, we we turn from that. We want to turn toward you right now and your Son, Jesus Christ. I realize he is the resurrected King, but for those of us who are believers now, oftentimes it's the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives that we are squelching at times. Father, we want to ask that you would massage your resurrection. We have made a mess. We have made death of our lives. And we want to ask that you would raise us up not only that day, we will run into the arms of Jesus. We can't wait to get home. But now, also now, that you would bring life out of the mess that we have made. Raise us up, Lord, please. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.